You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast devoted to Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes, and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss King novels related to The Dark Tower, non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about potential Dark Tower-related adaptations. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. This episode, this week, is uh, a what's called a... Merlin's Grapefruit episode, which I'm not 100% married to that uh, categorization, but um, I'm going to roll with it. Uh, Merlin's Grapefruit episodes are essentially our review episodes of non-tower-related Stephen King novels. In this, in, in this edition of Merlin's Grapefruit, we're going to be discussing Gerald's Game uh, by Stephen King, of course. Um <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get into my review here in a second. For me, for now, it's just me. My name is Matt Hurt, if this is your first time listening. Um, uh, Tower Junkies is the third podcast from ObsessiveViewer.com. We also have Obsessive Viewer, which is a weekly movie and TV podcast, and Anthology, which is a uh, solo podcast that I host with me going through the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer, as well as having some... Uh, some bonus episodes for modern and overall contemporary science fiction anthology shows. You can find more information about the podcast at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. Um, so yeah, so this, this, in this edition of, um, tower junkies, this is actually the first book review episode that I've done, uh, that I've recorded for this podcast specifically and recorded for any podcast that I do. So, um, bear with me if I have, if I'm a little bit out of my depth here, cause this is, this is kind of new for me. So it's just me this week. And next week we're going to have a review of Gerald's game, the film adaptation that is going to be premiering on Netflix that by the time you're listening to this may have already premiered on Netflix now that I think about it. But anyway, that is going to come later. So I read the book in preparation for the movie. I actually listened to it on Audible. Um, we don't have a sponsorship with Audible or anything, but I am such a huge fan of Audible. Um, I recently got into it um, about nine nine months ago, I think. Um and it's just, it's, it's life changing for me because I am a pretty notoriously slow reader, um, of physical books. Even though I love reading and I love reading physical books, I'm still pretty slow at it. But I like having audiobooks where I can kind of, um, still devote my attention to it, but do kind of work around my apartment or, or just do things or commute. Uh, commuting places and, and driving places. I, I just love that having that free time or having that time to listen to a book. So anyway, the narrator for Gerald's game was uh, Lindsay Krauss and uh, I thought she did a really fine job. Her voice kind of got a little annoying um, when she switched over to some of the voices of Jesse Burlingame's inner monologue. Um, 
that's just minor nitpicks on my part. One thing that I really didn't like about the performance or the the editing of it, and this is something that I believe is also prevalent in uh, the Insomnia audiobook, but there was music played throughout it, and like there are these little musical interludes um, between separate sections of the book. Like it's probably four or five times every hour, um, and it's a uh, it's a rotating type of music that just sounds like just basic like preset musical cues that you would find in garage band and there's it, they happen frequently each hour of a i believe it was a 12 hour book and it was it just got on my nerves so much it was so distracting and i really hated it so that's my gripe about that but um the way that these merlin's grapefruit um book review episodes are going to go is I'm going to read essentially the plot description courtesy of the back of the, of the paperback book. Um, and I'm going to read that and then I'll go into kind of a spoiler free thoughts on the, on the book. And then I'll have a spoiler discussion separate to that. So if you haven't read the book, uh, feel free to hear my analysis of it or my, my thoughts on it without being spoiled and then come back after you've read or listened to it. Um, to hear my spoiler thoughts. Um, Timestamps for the spoiler review and different reviews and everything um, can be found in the show notes of this episode. So let's get to it. So the, uh, the plot description, courtesy of the back of the paperback, which, by the way, they have uh, Simon & Schuster or... Um, I guess gallery books. It might be a division of Simon and Schuster. I'm not sure. I haven't researched it or anything, but they have been re-releasing. Yeah, it's gallery books. Um, they have been re-releasing King's novels in these paperback editions that are very colorful and uniform. Um, they're just they're just beautiful to look at. I, I, I they're so simplistic. It's just a a base color in the background with Stephen King's name and. Like in Gerald's game, for instance, it's Stephen King's name in black, um, in black uh, typeface. That's like the, it's like a marker. Um, that's the font is like a is like a sharpie's. It was written in sharpie, and then the title in white, and then there's just a colorful blue uh, depiction of handcuffs on it. And it's just it's just so simplistic. And it's I've I've been buying up the paperbacks because they look really nice um, on my on my bookcase. So anyway. Plot description for Gerald's game, and here it is. Once again, Jessie Burlingame has been talked into submitting to her husband Gerald's kinky sex games, something that she's frankly had enough of and they never held much charm for her to begin with. So much for a romantic getaway at their secluded summer home. After Jessie is handcuffed to the bedposts and Gerald crosses a line with his wife, the day ends with deadly consequences. Now, Jessie is utterly trapped in an isolated lakeside house that has become her prison and comes face to face with her deepest, darkest fears and memories. Her only company is that of the various voices filling her mind, as well as the shadows of nightfall that may conceal either an imagined or very real threat right there with her. So, um, this was one of my blind spots for my, my overall goal to read every Stephen King book there is. Um, it was one of my blind spots and I just knew very little about it going in except that it was about a woman confined to a bed, um, by handcuffs after her husband dies, um, during a sex act. So that was all I knew about the book. And 
I was really intrigued because Stephen King, he has these different levels to his to his novels that some of them are big, encompassing, like huge things like the Dark Tower series or or It or Under the Dome or these books that that basically have a living and breathing uh, city and, and ecosystem in them um, that are just that's so involved and, and just massive. But then he has these very small, more personal, smaller scale books that are um, that are very much about like a pretty much a straightforward kind of premise. Like this is a pretty straightforward forward premise, but it's also incredibly terrifying of uh, in terms of a situation. And it seems real. Like you wouldn't think about this. Like you're you're putting yourself in a position, um, and like the way that the that it all unfolds in here is that it's just kind of an accident like i mean it's it's the way it's all set up is there's a lot of moving pieces to it but i mean gerald just dies right there and she can't like she's she's trapped and it's one of the great things about the way that king develops this in this book is that he starts it off with like it's he doesn't waste time developing the setting or anything because everything that he describes in the setting and everything that he describes in those opening pages are all uh, things that uh, come together to really hammer home the predicament that Jesse finds herself in. And that's something I really appreciated. And as the book goes on, you get a real sense for, um, for just how dire the situation is, but it isn't solely about her confinement to the bed. It's more about her, um, uh, her mental state and, uh, her, the psychological torture that is both being subjected onto her and is being brought up from her, the recesses of her memory. And you get a real sense for, um, you get a, you get a very clear idea of what, of some of the most painful moments of her life and how they interact or how they influence other situations. And she rationalizes it with, uh, she rationalizes things in her past with, with why, why they, um, how they led to her being in this, in this predicament that could very well spell the end of her life. Um, and it's just, it's a really, it's a really well told story that I really enjoyed. Um, quite a bit. It goes to some places that I wasn't expecting it to. Um, but it still was, was pretty enjoyable. It was a very good psychological thriller from Stephen King. And you would think that it, there's always a risk of having, uh, not enough to say in this type of story. Like you have the basic premise of a woman that's handcuffed to a bed and trapped there, you're you run the risk of running out of things to say and you king doesn't really do that here because it's very much like i said steeped in her history and and what the character has gone through in her life and that really elevates the not only the tension of the entire story but the freshness of of the story as it unfolds and it goes into places that i i'll talk about in more detail in my spoiler section but like that I, that I'm kind of conflicted and conflicted by, but just the, the basic idea of it, the basic structure of the book really worked for me because you, cause that, that's something that you would be in, like in that situation, you would be more self self-reflective and you would, uh, 
learn a lot about yourself and about your willingness to survive and, and what you're willing to do and, and, uh, how you can, how you can get past, um, this ordeal. And that's something that's really handled well within the pages of Gerald's game. Um, and I'm trying to think of how, what else I can say without spoiling it. Um, like I said, this is the first real book review that I've done in podcast form. So it's, uh, it's kind of a learning, there's a bit of a learning curve with me here and being on, being the only one on this, on this episode is, is a little, uh, is a little intimidating too, but we'll work through it. But, um, overall, uh, Gerald's game was a pretty satisfying psychological thriller with a lot of really interesting um, and, and frightening, um, moments spread throughout it. And it went into some places that I was not expecting it to go, which is always a pleasant thing when I'm reading King that it's just, it's the premise alone is so simplistic and so straightforward. And he spends so much time in the opening pages, just explaining why, like, like laying the groundwork for, for things to come within the narrative. Um, but it's so straightforward, but it is such a terrifying premise because you get this claustrophobic feeling or this, this helpless feeling that you, if you empathize with the character, you just feel just as helpless as she does. And it's, I mean, it's a terrifying ordeal to, to think about like what the way that it's set up. It's, it's very clear that she is, you know, she is the only way she's going to get out of this is if she gets herself out of it. And, and, the way that it's set up, like King doesn't do her any favors, <laughs> um, in this, in the setup of it. It's not an easy, it's not an easy fix. And, and I mean, who's to say if she even gets out, that's what I'll say in my non-spoiler section. So, um, I guess that'll do it for the non-spoiler part of this review. So if you haven't read, um, Gerald's game yet, uh, feel free to, to end, like, leave the podcast and, and come back to it when you have read it. Um, because I'm gonna get into my more in-depth, spoiler-filled, uh, review of Gerald's game. Hey everyone, I'm Christopher DeFilippis. My name is Skipper Martin. And you might know us as the hosts of 112263, an event podcast. But Skipper and I are here to announce our new podcast, which will be all about the new Hulu series, Castle Rock. Not only are we going to be covering the TV show, but we're going to be covering the Stephen King books and characters that seem to be somehow tied into the TV show. Not to mention TV movies and other theatrical movies, even the bad ones. But we're going to do it. We're going to do it, right, Chris? Yep, we're going to do it all. So watch this space, subscribe, 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 and we will be dropping our first episode in no time. It's about a certain murderous clown. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Follow the Castle Rock TV podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CRTVPod. Visit our website at CRTVPodcast.com and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash CRTVPod. The Castle Rock TV podcast is a fractured entertainment to Flipside Media production. All right, so spoilers on for Gerald's game. Um, so a big part of this novel is how... Uh, Jesse Burlingame, how she, how she deals with her situation. She has these inner monologues with these different voices that, um, basically one's like, like, uh, the hard nosed voice of her, of her former roommate. And the other one is this kind of goody two shoes one that's, that's more fearful and everything. And it's a really interesting dynamic. I really like 
the use of the inner monologue and, and the other voices um, for two reasons. One, one, they help establish the setting and establish the, the, uh, inner, it's not just her thinking about it. It's her having a conversation with other characters. Um, and I thought that was really, really well done. And it also helps, um, it, it also helps us bring, it also helps bring us to, uh, pivotal moments in, in the history of the character and really helps us esta- helps establish what the character's strengths are and what she needs to overcome to get out of this, uh, uh, out of this situation. And the kind of immediate thing that I really, uh, got une- uneasy about or unnerved by was the thought of the dog eating Gerald. Um, it's such a gruesome and wonderful thing. And it the way that King sets all of this up, it's like he establishes that the door, the, the back door uh, keeps, keeps flying open and that, and that Gerald didn't, didn't close it properly. And then they establish that he establishes that there's a dog there. And then as soon as Gerald dies and he's on the floor, I'm just thinking like that, that dog is going to come eat that going to come eat him. And like, just the thought of it is so gross and, and grotesque and, and, unnerving that I'm almost disappointed that we didn't get like, there's some graphic depictions of the dog eating Gerald and, and, and tearing away at Gerald. Um, it's very graphic, but I kind of wish that it's morbid, but I kind of wish that there was a little more, like I kind of wish that he went in, uh, went into more detail about like maybe the smell, uh, affecting, um, Jesse and, and more detail about that. I mean, we get a lot of grotesque, uh, descriptions of it, like him, the dog tearing away at the cheek and tearing away at the flesh and everything. And then, uh, just the flies that are swirling around Gerald. So it's not like, I don't know, in, in probably in a less, uh, in a less psychological book in a more cheap scare kind of book, it would be more, uh, more pivotal to show Gerald's decomposition, um, while uh, to have that effect, uh, affect Jesse's, uh, mental state and everything. But the way that it's handled, I, I have no real complaints for it. It's just in my own morbid way. I was kind of expecting there to be a little bit more. And we get a lot of, um, hints at, at what happened at dark score Lake. And, at before we, before it was revealed that she was the victim of of a, mol- uh, a molestation from her from her father um before that i kind of wondered if we were going to get a more supernatural thing because obviously stephen king is known for having supernatural elements in his in his stories um kind of pitting ordinary characters and everyday characters into abnormal and supernatural situations. But what was refreshing was that this didn't have like that supernatural element to it. It had a little bit, but it was more psychological, um, on Jesse's part. And I'll talk more about that here in a bit, but I was kind of wondering if we were going to get into a supernatural kind of story, uh, about, uh, the, the merchant of death or whatever. Um, the space, I was wondering if the space cowboy was like a supernatural entity. Um, but I'm really happy with what we got in, 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 uh, with what we got instead. Like, I kind of wondered when they first, when he first introduced the dark score lake, um, memory, I kind of wondered if the eclipse like caused her to have, like, that's why she has voices in her head or, or something to that effect. But it turned out that she was just molested, which is 
terrible and, and disturbing in its own right and really gives a lot of um really gives a lot of um intrigue and dimension to that character and in terms of how it's how it's revealed uh we get the we get a quick memory of um Jesse's when like back i think this was in 1975 or 1965 so 2 years after uh dark score lake i believe so i didn't have it in my notes here but um there's a memory of of her brother goosing her or or uh uh just playfully just messing with her and her overreacting and, and freaking out and, and almost like beating him uh, because of it. And at first you get this kind of weird, when it's first introduced, before you know that she was molested, you get this kind of like, that's kind of a weird thing. Uh, maybe she has, uh, I was thinking maybe she has like an anger issue or this is when I was still thinking that maybe it was a supernatural uh, story that maybe there was something to her that wasn't going to, that was going to be revealed later. But re but not only is it made apparent that it's because she was a victim of, of abuse and uh, sexual abuse and, and molestation that uh, not only is it revealed then, like after it's revealed, they actually, he, she actually revisits that, that memory and you really get a sense of why she flipped out for, um, and then and she flipped out on her brother and it's just so unnerving and, and unsettling and really puts it into, uh, the, the backlash that she, um, experienced or the, the lashing out at her brother It really puts it into context and it's really tragic. Um, so the actual memory of Dark Score Lake and the actual um, abuse that she suffered—it's—I mean, it's—it's it's horrifying. It's—it's it's absolutely horrifying. And King really, really lingers on it, and he really goes into depth about it. And it's so—I really don't know how I feel about it. It's—it's it's really unsettling, um, and it's meant to be. It's not—it's not. It, it's not it's not anything it's not necessarily gratuitous or anything it's just it's just really really unsettling and it's really it was really hard to to get through um not only the actual moment of it like the actual the pages and pages and pages of of description of it and suspense building toward it and everything but also like the lead up to it there was um there was this weird this weird thing between Jesse and her father that it, maybe this is just how I read it or this is maybe I'm reading into something that wasn't there. I'm, I'm putting too much emphasis on it, but there was this weird connection where it's like where Jesse felt like inklings of attraction toward her father. Maybe, maybe I misheard it when I was listening to the audiobook, but I feel like it was there and it was just, it was, it was kind of weird. Um, and just kind of just didn't really work for me. Um, and just, it just really, it kind of seemed a little contradictory because the whole idea that, well, maybe not contradictory, maybe I'm, I'm over speaking there cause it's not necessarily contradictory. Cause I was going to say, because it seemed more like, uh, flirtatious, like, ah, it's such a tricky, it, uh, it's such, it's such a tricky thing to say. It seemed like she was not receptive to it, but like she describes having this weird attraction thing 
with her father that just it, that part just didn't sit well with me. Maybe I misheard it, but um, it just it just felt off. Like the whole lead up to it just felt really off, and uh, I wasn't sure what 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 King was getting at with that. But the actual act, the actual uh, molestation during the eclipse, where where he ejaculates on her um, when she's when she's on his lap, is oh, it's it's really really hard to get through. Like it's it's real. Like like I said, King lingers on it a lot, and it's really unsettling, really unnerving. And I know that that's the point, but. Man, I wanted that to get over with very quickly, and and King did not give me that luxury. Um, and then he kind of hints at, um, or, or he hints at like even worse things happening, saying that um, at one point Jesse says, um, "This is around seven hours into the audiobook, uh, seven hours and nine minutes." Uh, what he did on the deck was nothing compared to what he did to me in the bedroom which that made me like cringe really badly. And what that was, uh, what that was leading towards is just the manipulation that he did to her. Like he manipulated her, manipulated her into, um, keeping this secret and, and just, it's, oh, it's, it's despicable and disgusting and just really, really tragic. The way that he, uh, talks to his daughter after this, after this event that is going to scar her so deeply and he gets her to go along with him, um, the way that he, it's not like a, it, it's such a predatory depiction of, of the manipulation tactic that he uses. Like it's such a predatory thing where he basically, basically gets her to agree to keep it a secret. Um, and it's just, it's, it's despicable and it's, it's so unsettling. Um, and it's like, I kind of wish that it was a supernatural thing at dark score Lake and not this. Cause it was, it was too real. It was too, oh, it was, it was, it was really unsettling. Um, so all that being said, we get this introduction of the space cowboy uh, character, which is this figure that visits her um, in the night. And this is probably this is probably the scariest part of the book um, in terms of just general fear and, and terror that I felt for it because she is completely trapped here and she sees this figure that is obscured in darkness and she sees that it's, it's very misshapen and, and seems otherworldly like alien. And there's this big question of whether or not this is real or imagined or this is her psyche breaking a little bit. And it's handled really well because um, it, it can be kind of confusing because he holds the case and has bones and things in it. Um, and it's very confusing and it's, it's disorienting and she gets it in her head that, that he's going to, he's coming for her, that he is death and he is going to, to come for her. And that's what gives her the strength to, to free herself from the handcuffs. Um, but it's just when you get to that end game where you, to the last chapter, the last few pages where she's in the courtroom and she, he, uh, Raymond, uh, Joubert, um, when he, when he looks at her and, and does those motions to her, the, the realization that he was really there is unbelievably chilling to me. Like it's, it's super, it's, it's really, really unsettling. Um, and what's interesting is that, 
after his visit and, and her, she, her voices tell her that she is going to have to escape because he's going to come back for, um, the actual escape is pretty, uh, I wouldn't say quick cause it's very, very, uh, slow and, and, and very, uh, tense. Um, but after she frees herself, it's like, like there's a lot of book left. Um, and I was kind of thrown off by that cause I was kind of expecting it to be expecting it, you know, that to be the end of the, uh, of the storyline and everything. But I mean, she, she escapes with a lot of book left, but the way that she escapes cutting her, cutting her wrist and, and the description of, of her trying to slide through, like using the blood to lubricate the, the handcuff and slide through the, there's a description of her peeling her hand, uh, like the act of, of, um, squeezing out of the, um, handcuff. Uh, there's a description of her. It's like, she's peeling the skin away from her hand, uh, because of it like that, just that, Oh, that just, that gave me chills and, and really, uh, really was disgusting to me. <laughs> um, so I was left wondering how they were going to, how King was going to resolve the, the storyline and how he was going to finish it up with her, uh, escaping with like three, three hours left in the audiobook. Um, but I kind of liked the way that it was done. It was, there's a bit of a time jump. She's recovering. Well, first of all, she goes through the house. Um, and that, that was really, uh, really intense also. Cause she is very much, um, she's very much in a debil- debilitated state and she can barely move and function and she has to essentially escape now. And I really liked the idea that she is, that she could have plugged in the phone. She could have, she could have called 911 and gotten it, but she had this overwhelming fear that, that the space cowboy was going to come back and, and kill her before the police could. So she had to actually force herself to escape. And I, I really liked that element of it. And the moment where she, where she sees the space cowboy in the rear view mirror in the back of the car, uh, that causes her to crash is really, really unsettling. Like I listened to that part when I was getting ready for bed one night and it was just like, that's a mistake. Um, but the time jump to, to after she's recovered and, and everything and kind of getting us caught up with, with what it is through the letter or what she's gone through with, by writing the letter to Ruth, um, is interesting. There's a lot to catch up on. It's kind of a, kind of a quick paced thing. Um, and then the whole introduction of, of, Jubair as, as a potential, the potential space cowboy, essentially. I kind of, I, I kind of didn't like the way that he, that whole storyline is just introduced. Like I kind of, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's, it makes sense. It's effective. It's, it's needed to be sudden because previous to that, we, like if it was introduced early in the, early in the book, um, we would have spent the whole time reading about the space cowboy thinking like, I wonder if that's that guy. Um, or obviously it would be that guy because why would, why else would King, um, uh, set this up that way? Um, having it come up at the end suddenly as an explanation for it is kind of a double-edged sword because it saves us. It, it, it's, it makes it about whether or not it was him rather than confirmation that it was him. Like, like there is still that suspense of, whether or not this this uh creature was real or if it was just if it was this man that was going to kill her or this man that was visiting her 
in in real life and the descriptions of of Joubert's, uh misdeeds and and killings and disgust disgusting behavior is uh are, are really really gruesome like i i kind of want to read i don't know what this says about me especially after i already said that i kind of wish that they would have went in that king would have went into more detail about the dog eating a human being but um the way that jubert's um crimes are, are described i kind of wish that i like i kind of would like to read like a detective novel with him as the villain um i, I would i would like to to read that but um but that's neither here nor there but uh i at the end of the day i did like that he that the kind of climax of the book four or the emotional climax of the of the book for um jesse was that she was confronting jubert to, to find out if it was him um because at that point he is the physical representation of jesse's history of abuse um like uh he's he's a monster through and through and uh he terrorized her and when she was in her most vulnerable and traumatic state um and i kind of felt like this is my read on it that with her father and husband both dead who they both were were abusive to her in different ways um with both of them dead at that point all the blame the rage the fear and the the pain kind of shifts on to jubert i don't i don't know like psychologically i don't know if that's um what king was going for i don't know if that's psychologically accurate of abuse victims or anything but i feel like that moment was a triumph for her being in the courtroom and seeing him like getting that, uh, confirmation that it was she, that he wasn't a manifestation of her, uh, subconscious that he was really there is a big triumphant moment for her because she is facing her abuser, abuser, or the representation of her history of abuse. And she's able to spit in his face and, and, um, and kind of have that closure and know that she's not crazy and know that she's not going to have to live in fear of the space cowboy visiting her and, and following her for the rest of her life until, until she's killed by it. Um, I, I just really like that. That's how the book ends with, um, uh, in, in that scenario. I'm, I'm really happy with the way that that situation resolves itself and how Jesse's, um, emotional journey ends with that with that uh courtroom scene and it's <laughs> the whole i mean the description of jubert seeing her and then miming her being cuffed to the bed as confirm like that's her confirmation that it really was him like just the description of that is so unsettling and just sends a chill down my spine because we we know in so few pages we know so much about this character like this this villain this this despicable human being this uh this evil being and the terrible things that he does and it kind of puts it all together that he is that he was there with jesse and just the thought of what he could have done and what he likely would have done is just so, so chilling and, and something that kind of really, uh, uh, stayed with me for, for a little while after, after reading this or after listening to the audiobook. Um, so overall, I, I mean, Gerald's game I thought was, was really well done. Um, I kind of, I didn't really have many expectations for it because it's one of those, uh, Stephen King books that I, I didn't know much about going into it. And I know that there is some connection with it to Dolores Claiborne. 
And I definitely want to read that uh, soon, but right now I'm going through the dead zone. But um, but yeah, I'll I'll read that soon and give my give my thoughts on it in another episode of Tower Junkies. Um, and speaking of this being Tower Junkies, um, I don't think there were any connections to the Dark Tower in Gerald's game. Um, none that I could that I could find. Um, and that makes sense. Um, as far as where it ranks with other Stephen King books, um, I do keep a file or a note on my phone that's all of the King books that I've read, uh, ranked by my enjoyment of it. It's, it's, it's a fluid list. It always changes. Um, I kind of have Gerald's game kind of somewhere in the middle or maybe below middle. Um, I have it just below Pet Cemetery, which Pet Cemetery really, really messed me up. Um, uh, but I have it above Carrie and Salem's Lot, which pending rereads of those, I mean, that, that could all change. Um, like I said, it's, it's a pretty fluid list and, uh, constantly changing, um, depending on my mood and, and where I'm at when I'm reading, reading or rereading the novels. Um, yeah, so that's my review of Gerald's game. Um, of course it is being adapted into a film for Netflix. Okay, it's going to come out on September 29th, uh, 2017. Um, I believe it's going to have a theatrical release, um, but it's also going to be released on, on Netflix. Um, it stars Carla Gugino, Gugino as uh, Jesse Burlingame and uh, Bruce Greenwood as Gerald, which I thought was, was a good, good casting choice. Like I, Bruce Greenwood is awesome. Um, directed by Mike Flanagan, who he uh, directed... I believe he wrote and directed Hush, which has a lot of, um, has gotten a lot of good feedback. I, I haven't seen it. Um, he also made, uh, Ouija Origin of Evil, which I heard was pretty good. Um, I'm a terrible fan of, of horror movies because I haven't seen, uh, I haven't been keeping up to date with, with horror movies as of late, but I'm looking forward to Gerald's game. I think that in terms of stories that King, that King has written that can be adapted, I think, it works best that Gerald's game is uh, kind of a, a smaller scale um, story, and it's it's kind of steeped more in psychological terror and in kind of a more grounded scenario in in a way. Um, and I think that'll that'll do well with it being adaptable. But as any Stephen King fan knows, the um, ratio of good adaptations to bad adaptations is pretty. Uh, it swings and it, like it's pretty clear like there's <laughs> most of the adaptations are, are pretty bad um so we'll see uh, i know that king is kind of going through an adaptation renaissance so hopefully uh hopefully gerald's game is good but i will be on here to review it i think i'll have tiny watch it too and then he and i can be on it be on the show and, and talk about our thoughts on gerald's game um until then uh thank you for listening and again uh, shoot me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and go like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash tower junkies pod. And also, uh, follow on, follow me on Twitter at tower junkies pod. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening and, uh, yeah, long days and pleasant nights. Thank you for listening to tower junkies, a dark tower podcast presented by obsessiveviewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at TowerJunkiesPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can find ways to do that at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate or become a patron for Obsessive Viewer at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for recurring donations with different reward tiers. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can contact us by emailing us at matt at obsessiveviewer.com or by tweeting us at Tower Junkies Pod or at Obsessive Viewer and at Obsessive Tiny. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Tower Junkies Pod. For more podcast content from ObsessiveViewer.com, check out Anthology, my solo side project podcast where I'm reviewing The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and exploring other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology television shows. You can find Anthology at AnthologyPod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. Once again, thank you for listening to Tower Junkies, and we'll see you next time.